Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, Kaori Okano, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a pleasure to have you here and to talk about the book you co-edited with Yoshio Sugimoto, Rethinking Japanese Studies, Eurocentrism, and the Asia-Pacific Region. Um, I have to confess that when I first saw the title of the book, even before I was able to actually hold it in my hands, I thought, yes, Rethinking Japanese Studies, from a perspective of Eurocentrism is definitely something that should be on our agenda, something that all of us who are engaged in the field uh, should think about very seriously. Um, So I'm actually excited that we can uh, talk about the book. Uh, But before we get into the discussion, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, For example, how you became involved in Japanese studies and um, how did the idea for this book come about? Thank you for a very generous introduction, Raman. Um, It's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to be able to speak about this book which I edited with Yoshio last year, and it came out last year. Um, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Hiroshima, Japan, until I finished my undergraduate study. I studied um, what they call curriculum study of English. Basically, I was hoping to teach English at senior high school. Um, however, I had opportunity to spend a year in New Zealand, in Auckland University, in early 80s as an exchange student sponsored by Ministry of Education for a year. And it really changed my perspective of my future and where I want to be. I really had a great time there, uh, living in a dormitory with Pacific Islanders from Tonga, Tokarau, Cook Island, Samoa, etc., etc. And I was taking an anthropology class of modernization theory, whereby modernization as defined by the Western concept is not actually possible for these Pacific Island nation states. So that's where my um, interest in the social science uh, came, emerged. Um, Instead, I went back to Japan after that and I was going to be a teacher, but then I realized that maybe I should go outside of Japan for a while before I settle down on a proper uh, permanent full-time job, since it seemed to me at the time, maybe this is not the case in 2018. 2018. But at that time, I felt that once you settle in one particular job, it would be quite hard to get out. Hence, I tried to look for um, a job as a Japanese peaceful in a Pacific island. But having an arts degree, I was pretty useless. What they're looking for is a pineal beater or a bricklayer or a PE teacher and others. Uh, so I decided maybe doing a postgraduate study in that part of the world is the easiest option. And indeed, 
that was the case. So I did a postgrad study, master's degree in Sydney University. And then I taught at high school in Sydney. Then I moved to New Zealand to teach uh, another two years before I decided to return to university to do PhD. By that time, I had been a school teacher for three years in the Anglophone environment. And comparing my own experience of schooling in Japan and what I observed in Australia, in New Zealand, at the ground, on the ground level of schooling, I decided to do ethnographic study of schooling amongst the working class kids in Japan. And that's where I started my research career. And after finishing um, my PhD, I got the job at the Latrobe University, where I am, and I've been here for a long time. I wouldn't say how many years, but I've been here for a very, very long time. I teach Asian studies, uh, introduction to uh, Japan, as well as some advanced language studies, also supervising uh, post-grad, study, post-grad students in Asian studies, not, not, not only on Japan, but also on other parts of Asia, such as Indonesia and others. Um, I have two children, uh, now 22 and 19, um, and experiencing schooling of Australia as a parent of a minority children was also uh, given me another perspective of how the children of diverse background experience and get out different things from what's called mainstream schooling. So I, I value the experience of schooling and education, being parent, uh, greatly as something that informs my research agenda as well. So I'm, 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 I was just going to say that, um, yes, I, I'm assuming that um, the experience um, as a parent uh, informs your um career as a researcher as well, right? That's right. And the kind of topic that that I have chosen, which is mainly the sociology and anthropology of education. My recent area, I mean, this book is about Japanese studies, and this is the first time that I actually went beyond uh, more empirical studies. I then wrote my essays about what I do as a researcher, my research area actually is sociology and anthropology of education of young people. So I work and publish on, in particular, uh, education and social inequality in Japan and in Asia. And when I say uh, inequality, inequality as an intersection of gender, social class. Mm-hmm, I see. So I have on uh, minority education, migrant education, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So uh, then what is the story of the book? Um, where, where did you get the, the idea for, for such a book? It's rethinking, rethinking Japanese study. Well, the, um, this, this really, the book really isn't a product of a philosophical, <clears throat> philosophical debate drawing on uh, a post-colonialism, Eurocentrism uh, as a social theory. It came, it came out of more pragmatic concerns when I was um, the 
when I was the conference convener, the, the Japanese Studies Association of Australia, as we call JSAA, convened a, a, a conference every two years. And then I was, I was asked to convene a conference in uh, 2013 in order to hold the conference at La Trobe University in 2015. So I had two years to prepare for this. And I had a committee of four people uh, com- uh, consisting of myself, Yoshio Sugimoto, Lydia Tanaka, who is a linguist, and Elise Foxworth, who is a literary scholar. And then when we were talking about, oh, well, first of all, we had to decide on a date and then decide on the keynote speakers. And when we were discussing who to invite uh, as a keynote speaker, and then at that point, we were convinced that we get a certain amount of funding from Japan Foundation and, and elsewhere. And I, we knew that we could get three or four international speakers. And then we looked at the list of uh, keynote speakers of JSSA conference in the last 10, 15 or more years, and then realized that all these keynote speakers actually come from North America or Europe or Japan, nowhere else. So we decided, well, yeah, so we decided, well, this is, this is a bit strange. Um, you know, the Japanese studies is not exclusive property of Anglophone world or Western world, and and we know that that the uh, mainland China PRC South Korea also has quite a large number of scholars who work on Japanese studies. Let alone the number of people who actually learn Japanese language. So we decided, okay, well for a change, let's get keynote speakers from Asia not from North America or continental Europe. And hence, we decided, well, in that case, there is a big debate about Eurocentrism in social sciences and political science. Well, if so, why don't we have this as, as a topic and get people like Len Len Tan, who is one of the authors uh, of, the, of the contributing chapter, Eiji Oguma uh, from Japan, and Professor Gu Ping, from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And we also felt that um, most of, unless somebody comes from Japan, all these keynote speeches are done in, were, had been done in English language. The question is, why is this? Um, it is understandable if you are at the... Uh, disciplinary, discipline-based conference such as sociology and political science, well, obviously, one, the conference requires the lingua franca, which, of course, uh, in English. However, the area studies such as Japanese studies have option of presenting papers in the Japanese language, that is, the language other than English, and surely keynote speakers can do that as well. But at this point, there has been, I floated an idea to, to the executive committee of the, the JSSA, and somebody mentioned that, well, but the, that some of our postgrad students don't, won't be able to comprehend this whole thing. For instance, if uh, uh, Professor Oguma or Professor Bupin give the whole talk in um, Japanese, uh, not all postgrad 
would not be able to comprehend. So we had a binding. So in, in this case, we had English uh, translation of well, English translation of the talk on the screen at the back of the speakers, and then so the professor Bupin, professor uh, Oguma made a keynote speech, but at the back there was an English version running so that people are not excluded. Um, how careful we have to be for mono, for the people who only have English language. Um, so the to your question, how did the book come out? The book came out because we had to decide at the time when we were deciding on keynote speakers that, that we didn't like the idea that all keynote speakers came from that what we call the center of knowledge production. Uh, giving uh, uh, lectures and keynote speech in the dominant English language in the Japanese Studies Conference. And we thought for a change, uh, we could do something different. And the, the JSSA is quite an uh, um, tolerant or accommodating organization because it's a quite a small association with a membership of about 300 academics of Australian universities, um, they are quite happy with it. So we went along. So that's the um, the beginning of this book. Now, when we asked the keynote speakers, we requested this topic, how they see Japanese studies in light of the, the dominant tendency of Eurocentrism in knowledge production and the hierarchy of knowledge in the global scene. The, uh, Professor Oguma already had thought about this in a great deal, so he was very happy to, to talk about it. And uh, Oguma's chapter constitutes chapter two. He is a bit critical about the lack of or insufficient effort made by Japan-based Japanese scholars uh, that they they don't they have not made sufficient effort to engage in the global academic conversation. That is to say, they don't publish their research work in English. They publish everything in Japanese, and he quotes uh, quite a large number of statistics to demonstrate this. He argues that it is because that. Japan offers a sufficient market for the academic publication in the Japanese language. People don't have to publish in English. They have enough outlets of uh, journals and books where they can share their findings and research with their colleagues in Japan. So there's no urgent need. Um, so, So that was Oguma's chapter. And the following two chapters, uh, since we wanted to become, um, we wanted to have this book as interdisciplinary as possible, I invited uh, Lydia Tanaka, who is a social linguist, and Tomoko Aoyama, who is a literary scholar. They, uh, these two chapters, the Lydia Tanaka's chapter is very interesting in that she presents are two different distinctive camps or schools of studying 
Japanese language. One is called Kogaku, the study of the national language. And the other one is called Nihongo Gaku, the study of the Japanese language. And she delineated differences between the two in terms of historical development that is influenced by the political agenda of the government, as well as the modernization process. And she speculates where they are going in the future. Similar argument is presented by the following chapter, uh, Tomoko Aoyama, in relation to kokubungaku, the, 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 the Japanese literature, uh, in a more traditional sense, and Nihonbungaku, the, the Japanese literature. Uh, again, Tomoko delineates the differences in terms of the process of development and the audience and, and the readership. Um, but one of the striking uh, findings or one of the striking aspects that I was very interested in, in in these two chapters, and this is the reason why we have approached these two to write these things, is that both Kokugogaku and Kokubungaku have maintained a relative autonomy of uh, academic discipline, totally largely and influenced by, dominated by the global scholarship that comes out from North America and continental Europe uh, and Anglophone research traditions, theories, and so on. Uh, I find it quite interesting in a sense that these scholars did not feel the need to share their findings, but at the same time, I was quite... um, impressed, I guess, in a positive sense, that they could hold out, they, they, they could resist this uh, powerful uh, flow of information, of knowledge, and the knowledge of Anglophone world. So that's a quite an interesting, these two chapters are quite interesting chapters in that sense. Um, the following three chapters uh, come from um, one, Lenin Tang is based in Singapore, and Duck Lee is based on a Canberra ANU. He talks about the Japanese studies in South Korea, which have uh, a distinctive historical background in that Korea was under Japan's colonial rule for so many years during the pre war period. And he describes how it affected the development of Japanese studies in post-war world. Then uh, the former president of JSSA, Karen Stevens, uh, wrote a chapter about Australia's view of Japan, how the Japanese studies was developed in Australia. And he, she does refer to uh, that the peripheral, periphery nature of Australia. Then Australia... Uh, in a discussion of uh, center periphery in the knowledge production, it is often said that Australia is in semi-periphery, in that it is in an anglophone world whereby academics can share their findings in English language journals, books, and so on and so on, but it is not at the center because center core of the knowledge production and legitimation 
remains in North America and, and England. So that's the kind of second part. The first part was the Japanese studies and autonomy that these Japanese scholars maintain in Japan and the implications for that. And the second part was Japanese studies in the Asia-Pacific region, namely Southeast Asia, South Korea, and Australia. And the third part of the book um, written by uh, Professor Bu Ping from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Uh, he's, he hasn't published in English before, um, but he was the, the leader of the Chinese team in a collaborative project amongst three countries, namely PRC, South Korea, and Japan, to produce shared history textbook for high schools. Uh, I was very impressed and I was very intrigued by the whole project that emerged from uh, civil society. It wasn't government-directed. It emerged from uh, academics and the secondary school teachers to come up with this project and how the project progressed and challenges and difficulties that they faced naturally and how they overcame uh, these differences um, in uh, in a way that are productive to all parties concerned. Um, Professor Buping gave his own biography, um, starting with the Russian history scholar, did a PhD in Russian history in Halbin Normal University. And then with the change of a PRC government policy, he mentioned that he was asked to learn Japanese language and to study Japanese history, and he became the historian of Japanese history. And it was quite interesting that his talk was uh, uh, really intriguing to all concerned in a sense that we could see the Chinese perspective of the East Asian history uh, in the way that we have not heard before. And the following chapter by Vera Maki is a professor of Japanese history and gender studies. She reported and examined another transnational uh, history project in uh, uh, modern women, quote unquote, modern women across Asian. East Asian societies, again, uh, pointing out the difficulties and challenges, but more so, I thought that uh, this paper, this, this particular chapter, gives us a kind of optimism in the way in which we can move forward um, in a collaborative project across East Asia. And then the lastly, Yoshio Sugimoto proposes uh, what he's called cosmopolitan methodology, uh, which is no, which is a plural centric, um, in that no particular uh, 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 no particular framework or paradigm or which derives from a particular region. Although the, there is a view that everything which comes from the the West is universal, um, that's not the case. That that that, that he pursues the plural centric cosmopolitan methodology. So. 
we thought something that started from um, quite a casual conversation in my office uh, as to who should we who we should be inviting to this particular conference uh, about two years prior to the, the actual conference, which took place in July. 2015, uh, I was quite happy with the book in a sense that the book had something to say about the current state of Japanese studies and area studies generally. In particular, when Yoshio argues that all science studies, all social science and humanities studies are area studies. If somebody is studying about the minority issues in North America, it's actually an American, uh, you know, something that the findings is, is come from a particular socio-cultural, geographical, materialist circumstances that is North America. But when we talk about area studies, it's often you know, we don't we don't refer to the studies about um, Anglophone societies as an area studies. Um, yes, <laughs> I actually have um, um, some questions uh, 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 about that, and I'll, I'll get to my questions in a in a minute. Um, I think I think the story of the book is absolutely fascinating. How it started from a, a conversation in in your office, as you were saying, and then you had the conference, and it uh, developed into into a book. And uh, just a short uh, recap: uh, so chapters two, three, and four discuss um, Japanese studies in the Japanese context. Uh, and then you have chapters five, uh, six, and seven uh, talking about Japanese studies uh, with a South, Southeast Asian perspective, and then in South Korea and Australia. And chapters uh, eight and nine talking about transnational dialogues, uh, transnational history, so transnational uh, yes. projects. And then Yes, transnational collaboration. Yes, transnational collaboration in in study going history. beyond uh, borders, right? And then chapter ten is kind of um, the um, conclusion chapter, um, Professor Sugimoto's um, chapter, if I understand correctly. Um, you fail to mention uh, the first chapter, which uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your chapter which is uh, of course the introduction of the of the project but you also make some very interesting uh points uh thought-provoking remarks and uh, i would actually like to ask you a couple of questions about uh this first chapter since it's it's yours and um i'm imagining it's you're comfortable talking about it uh so you mention um the original contributions to Japanese studies that the book uh, can make. And uh, you talk about four ways in which the book can contribute to Japanese studies. And you, the first one is focus on Japanese studies. Uh, the second one is multi-regional. The third one, multidisciplinary. And the fourth one, uh, you talk about uh, strategies. And um, I understand uh, you also say that... Um, this this whole book is the result of a process of actually interrogating Japanese studies uh, from the uh, periphery and uh, thus trying to um, 
throw some light on the shed some light on the manifestations of the Euro-American dominance and so on and so forth. And uh, if if you could uh, talk a bit more about those four ways in which you feel the book contributes to, to Japanese studies. Okay, uh, thank you very much. That we see the original contribution of this volume uh, as as fourfold, as you mentioned. One is that we focus on Japanese. You can write about Eurocentrism. We can write about rethinking Eurocentric, which actually many people has done so far. Uh, in other areas, political science, there's a critique of Eurocentrism in international relations even. Uh, Eurocentrism in the study of, uh, in particular, India, um, where the post-colonial debate is very uh, uh, prevalent. But we don't often hear about Eurocentrism critique about the Japanese studies. For the reason that I'm not sure, actually, uh, is this because uh, the, the, the Japanese studies scholars don't feel that it is dominated by you? Is this because the Japanese, Japanese national, Japan-born academics themselves are less aware of Eurocentrism or post-colonialism, colonialist trend in the study of Japan? I am not sure, but I'm sure the people have different ideas. But the, the point is, is that we, we are doing this, we are rethinking about the Eurocentrism, we are critiquing the Japanese studies, current state of Japanese studies in, in, in terms of Eurocentrism. We think there is a Eurocentrism, Anglophone centrism, whereby the, 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 the Japanese studies research is not acknowledged and given uh, uh, value or assessment unless it is published in English language. Um, and the, the, the hierarchy of journals and the prestige of publication and so on is determined by the, the Japanese studies or social science in general at the center of this knowledge production. So the fact that we are focusing on Japanese studies is original. Um, and we did this critique by looking at our region, since we are at the periphery. Uh, I, I think the fact that this came out of Japanese Studies Association of Australia has has some, uh, 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 it really reflects the geographical specificity that Australia is semi-periphery. It is not at the centre, although it has an advantage of being being part of the English-speaking world. So we focus on China, South Korea, and many countries in Southeast Asia, and Australia, and Japan itself. And as Renan Tan's paper on Southeast Asia demonstrates, there is a diversity within the Southeast Asia. That the English-speaking world, Singapore, certainly has an advantage. Uh, uh, the, all the, uh, uh, the country-based conferences of Japanese studies uses either local language, such as Thai language and the Japanese language, but when they formed the Japanese Studies Association hyphen ASEAN, the, the medium of the lingua franca was English, but the fact that the, the association decided to have English as lingua franca for 
the conference meant that the people who were not educated in English-speaking world refused to attend. Uh, and a large number of uh, the the London Times gives uh, statistics as to the percentage of the university academics in Southeast Asia uh, in terms of where they got the PhD, and many of them got PhD in Japan under the um, the, the government Japanese government scholarship, and these people published their work in Japanese. In the Japanese journals, rather than in in English journals, so there is a kind of division uh, within the, the Japanese studies community uh, of Asia and Southeast Asian countries, and that's I think is quite an interesting point. Uh, we, I'm a social scientist. Your show is a social scientist. Um, we wanted to make it multidisciplinary in a sense that we're not just talking about social science. We're talking about the literary study, which I have. Actually, learned so much since I wasn't all that familiar with this, and also the linguistics. And lastly, uh, we have presented some concrete strategies as to uh, uh, how we can possibly address the Eurocentrism in, in Japanese studies in the region. Uh, for example, we propose. You, you actually talk about. Uh... Yes. I actually talk about it and about uh, I think the concrete strategies of Eurocentrism. Some people say that this, some of them are a bit fanciful, um, in a sense that um, I mentioned that that um, in order to address Eurocentrism, the the people at the periphery had been asked to make effort, and that is publish in English journal, uh, go to a conference and present the research in English and so on, then I'm raising a question. It's actually, um, it actually is the case that the, the people at the center isn't doing nothing. They can just um, what we know, listen to the findings, uh, research, read the research in English, and the people at the periphery are asked to make extra effort to address this. Um, so I'm suggesting that the people at the center could be more aware of this and include uh, the work that are translated from non-English language as part of the reading list. Or the PhD thesis uh, could have a kind of requirement that, that the thesis would need to include a certain number of uh, academic papers or books that have been translated from uh, no English language and so on. One could also say that doing a PhD, one has to learn one language other than English, but I might be going a bit too far there. So that's the kind of strategies that we have um, suggested uh, looking at the, the realities at those trading universities. Um, whereby the, the, the language other than English is not required even for Bachelor of Arts degree or it is not required even for people who are completing PhD in social sciences and humanities in general. So that's not that's a very uh, sad state. Okay, very concrete strategies uh, indeed. I would like to, to hear a lot more about this. Um, and I have... 
actually have another uh, another question, uh, which refers to the last chapter, uh, Yoshio Sugimoto's uh, chapter, um, where at, at, at the very end of the of the chapter, this is uh, in a way. I imagine a response to the first uh, chapter that you wrote and Yoshio Sugimoto talks about, he actually asks some uh, questions, uh, which I feel are very important um, to give just a couple of examples. Um, he asks, for example, what Japanese homegrown concepts and theories deserve international debate? How can we circumvent the institutional and structural impediments that stand in the way of the transnational circulation of Japanese social science scholarship? Or can we channel Japanese studies in Asia and beyond into the central arena? And uh, personally, I feel that these are really essential, uh, fundamental uh, questions. And I wanted to uh, ask you, um, Maybe if you have the answer to these <laughs> questions. Or... Well, I'm not sure if I can answer directly to these questions. Um, but uh, uh, the Japanese studies, uh, he asked, can Japanese studies in Australia develop a unique sensitivity to the scholarship in periphery? I think there is a, uh, we are in a privilege. We academics based in uh, Australia are more likely to be able to see that what it means to be at the periphery of academia than uh, those who are uh, at the periphery of the non-English speaking world. Um, so in that sense, yes, I think to a certain extent that the, the Japanese studies in Australia hopefully can develop a unique sensitivity to the scholarship in the periphery and hopefully that we can incorporate the research, uh, very productive research that is done in the non-English speaking world uh, into our own research and then uh, disseminate the findings of these research conducted at the periphery of non-English speaking world into our publications in English language so that their findings can be known and be engaged in the more global academic discourse. Um, the way in which the Japanese, one of the characteristics of Japanese studies in Australia is that we do not have a clear division between those who teach Japanese language and those who specialize in Japanese studies. Uh, I know that in North America and UK, in continental Europe, there is a separate association of Japanese language uh, lecturers or teachers or instructors or educators uh, at the tertiary level. Here it's, it's all together and I think that's partly because all of us, whether the research interest is, is a study, history, sociology or others, majority of us teach language as well. So that I think uh, created perhaps a bit more uh, uh, more inclusive environment, inclusive environment of different kinds of research and teaching as the Japanese Studies Association of Australia. I felt quite strongly when I attend the, uh, the conferences in North America and at the continent of Europe in that front. Hope I answered your question. Um, yes, 
<laughs> I actually, I, I was thinking about the fact that um, I'm actually familiar with the, the situation in um, in Europe. Um, and there, what I can tell you is that, for example, you have certain countries in Eastern Europe. Uh, I know the case of Romania or Bulgaria, uh, even Hungary to, to a certain extent, um, where, in fact, you do have, for example, a Japanese language teachers association, um, but you also have a couple of uh, centers uh, for research in, in, in Japanese studies. Uh, so on paper, things uh, look like they're uh, two different institutions, but in fact, the people involved in both are basically the same. Uh, so they're, they're both, they're involved in uh, Japanese language education as well as uh, research in Japanese uh, studies. Uh, one of the reasons could be, though, in, in countries like uh, Romania or uh, Bulgaria, the fact that there are very few uh, researchers who are actually active researchers and, uh, and teachers. Um, yes, um, uh, reading... Um, Reading the book, um, I didn't find, I, I mean, I did find a lot of answers, but I also found a lot of questions, uh, which is uh, <laughs> very important. And I think uh, we have to uh, keep thinking about these uh, questions, even if we never find an answer to them. But um, yeah, I do agree that we do have to, to think about how we can uh, channel, as Yoshio Sugimoto puts it, uh, Japanese studies more into the uh, central arena um, beyond the English-speaking, uh, uh, the Anglophone world, as you call it. And um, you know, we could continue talking about the uh, the book, but um, I also wanted to uh, to ask you about other projects. If you have um, anything else on the on the horizon now, if there's anything that you're working on uh, right now and that you would like to talk about. Oh, thank you. Um, I have um, project going on. One of which just produced uh, the first uh, edited volume quite recently, and we had the book launch last week at the Melbourne University. And this is um, a project called 30 Years of Talk, a longitudinal... Oh, so it's a, it's, it's a new book, which means we're going to have to do another interview. I'm very happy to do so. I must say that this, this interdisciplinary project is very new to me. Um, this, well, this is a, a, a I have been, uh, uh, being involved in this longitudinal project alone as my project. This is tracing a group of working class girls from since 1989, when I did a PhD at the working class schools in Kobe. I had hundred kids at the time, but after they graduated from high school, and obtained full-time working-class jobs, I have been following up a group of 22 girls or 21 girls until now. So I have all these ethnographic interview recording, and I've produced two books, monographs, out of that. Um, but then on, while I was doing this, I was struck by how the girls changed the way in which they speak to me. In the interview, because these are the girls who are 18 when I first met in 1989. They are now about 46 years old. Some of them are already grandmother. Um, so, I was, I was, I was, so I invited um, 
sociolinguist, uh, Melbourne-based sociolinguist, four of them, if they're interested to analyze this ethnographic data, ethnographic interviews, and they were quite interested in this, since this kind of data is, is quite um, rare. So uh, we, all of us, analyzed the data, and the book just came out, is called Discourse, Gender, and Shifting Identities in Japan, the Longitudinal Study of Kobe Women's Ethnographic Interviews, 1989-2019, Phase 1. So we are hoping this will be the Phase 1 book, and we are hoping and planning to produce a Phase 2 or Phase 3 in the future. What will um, Phase 2 be about, Phase 2, Phase 3? Well, for the Phase 1, we concentrated on a particular girl, one particular girl, uh, data, 1989 and 2000. In the Phase 2, we are uh, uh, looking at... uh, uh, more a larger number of girls and say for instance focusing on employment and the language shift employment and the shifting identities we're thinking of thinking of focusing on one particular theme um, for the next book but it's a very time consuming as an anthropologist I don't necessarily transcribe everything but the linguists really transcribe in a very technical fashion everything and one thing that I find is, is, is a bit embarrassing to, to, to tell the truth is that not only, not only do they analyze the language of the girls, the subject, uh, they analyze my language as well. Because apparently the, the, the conversation, you, know, you need to analyze all the participants of the conversation. So it was quite embarrassing and um, a bit intriguing to, to see how I speak in ethnographic interviews in search of the kind of information that I really want to get. Um, so that's something that I find interesting. And certainly the, the language used over the years among these girls, but also I have changed the way in which I speak because of the changing nature of the relationship between myself and these girls. So that's that's the latest one, that this sociolinguistics, uh, interdisciplinary uh, sociolinguistics research. Um, I'm also uh, uh, working on a monograph called Women in 30s in, in an anthropological sense, not the language, uh, not the language analysis, but the analysis of their life trajectory in their 30s. Um, the other one is that I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying, at, at this moment I'm writing a monograph on uh, changes and challenges in the, in the Japanese schooling. Um, I had a book in 1991 by Cambridge University Press called uh, Education in Contemporary Japan, uh, Diversity and Social Inequality. And the 20 years have passed since then. And quite a few people are asked, you know, what's now? So I am trying, I thought about updating the book, but I decided against it, uh, leaving the book of uh, 1999 as it is, and then produce the new book, focusing on the current changes and new development in light of 
what I wrote in 1999. So that's something that I'm working on. Well, I actually look forward to to hearing more about uh, all those uh, projects. And I'm actually looking forward to your uh, new book. Perhaps uh, we can also do an interview about uh, about your new book. Um, thank you very much. Um, thank you for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us uh, at New Books in East Asian Studies. Um, for our listeners, this was uh, Kaori Okano talking about uh, the book she co-edited with uh, Yoshio Sugimoto called Rethinking Japanese Studies, Eurocentrism, and the Asia-Pacific Region. Thank you very much, Kaori. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Goodbye. Bye.